today's passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair in gold or pure or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right. So tonight, we're going to be focusing, we read the whole passage there, but we're going to be focusing specifically on 11 and 12, which is a pretty, pretty hot button. Um, first off, before we jump into that, though, I do want to say, if you missed the last couple of weeks of sermons, if you... Uh, we're not here for either of those. I highly recommend you go back and listen to Mike's and Nikolai's sermon from the last couple of weeks. Um, the way they brought out those passages was fantastic and um, really helpful. Um, if you remember, uh, Mike, a couple of weeks ago, he brought out in one through seven this this whole thing with praying. We, we talked about Nero, some historic background. All that is going to affect and play into what we're looking at today. Um, last week, Nikolai, uh, last week as Nikolai pointed out, the whole context here, which gets lost in the controversy of this passage, the whole context though, is on being a church, being a people that pray. And somehow all of that kind of gets lost in this controversy. Um, the whole point, though, is to not get caught up in stereotypes of men quarreling. Guys, do we, do we like to argue sometimes? Debate? We like to be right? <laughs> or the stereotype of, of women with, you know, flaunting their fashion. Is that sometimes accurate? Sometimes? But we're to be disciples of Jesus... Marked by prayer and good works, not by our quarreling and our high fashion. We, we continue in that same vein of thought tonight as we get into this passage. So I do recommend you go back. I wanted to open up today by looking at a verse that Nikolai ended with last week, or it was towards the end of his, his sermon. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, Starting in verse 15, I want to read this whole section here. It just kind of, I feel like it sets the tone for us tonight. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That posture, I believe, that mutual submission, I think sets a really good tone for what we're going to look at today, the context here. Humbly, mutually submitted to one another out of reverence for our Messiah Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross. That's the context that this passage comes to us from. So now we get to look at one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. One of the passages that, depending on your tradition, depending on on where you fall, the way you read this passage, you might fall on a whole spectrum of interpretations of what exactly Paul is saying here. Depending on where you fall on that spectrum, 
And I believe, I'm sure, there's a variety of opinions here today in our gathering. Depending on where you fall, this could seem straightforward and simple. Paul says what he means, he means what he says. Or this could seem shocking or even offensive. What do you mean? My hope today, that as we go through this, I hope to bring some clarity not only to this passage, but hopefully some direction for how, as a community, uh, we can live in God's household. After all, that is the thrust, that's the whole point of this letter that we're spending now several months in, is how do we live in God's household? Remember, this is a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, dealing with real issues that were happening in a real place, in real time, uh, in Ephesus. Paul's writing in, in verse in 1 Timothy 3, he says exactly why. He's, he's writing so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. That's the point of this whole letter. That's, that's the emphasis behind all of this. But like I said, this is a really hard passage. This is not an easy one to just get around. So first, before we even jump into this, I want to take a look at how do we approach hard passages. Far too often, I hear stories of people who grew up in the church. Maybe they went to kids' church or Sunday school. They heard moralistic stories from the Bible. They, they heard veggie tales or whatever it is. And then something happens that maybe when in early adolescence, they begin to read the Bible for themselves for the first time, maybe early adulthood. And as they read the scriptures, I mean, you don't have to get far into the Old Testament before you get like, wow, some of this is crazy, scandalous even. And often people come to verses like this one that we're looking at today Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. You okay, Mike? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Often, you come to a passage like this if you grew up only hearing good moralistic stories in the, in the Sunday school version of the Bible. And this is scandalous. This, this will quickly, it will offend your modern sentiments quickly. <laughs> Understandably so, right? Yes, yes? Okay. You there? Everybody, everybody awake? Okay, good. Even worse, and I've seen this too many times to unbelieving or formerly believing people who have deconstructed they use verses like this. You see them on Facebook, people posting memes, taking verses like this one. Actually, there's, there's a really common one. This verse with a woman with duct tape over her face meant to make fun of and poke holes in Christianity as if it's archaic and barbaric. Way too often you see these things. This is one of those passages. This is a passage that people use to say, come on, this is, this is what you believe? Really? But there is, there is ways <clears throat> not to get around. We're not trying to get around the passage. But I think there are tools that we can use when we read the scripture to help us understand what exactly is happening here. Why is Paul saying this? Ultimately, out of this passage, and just for background, I wanted to do this. Out of this passage and a couple other like it, there's two main positions that the church is sort of like camped themselves in. There's these two words, egalitarian, complementarian. You guys familiar with these words? This means yes. <laughs> no. Egalitarian uh, is the view on gender roles that holds that women and men are equal and they share interchangeable roles in home, church, and in wider society. 
Essentially, in this view, there's no difference between a man and a woman. They're the same. Egalitarians have a really hard time with this passage. Complementarian, they feel really at home with this passage. The complementarian view is the view on gender roles that holds that women and men are spiritually equal, but they have distinct and complementary roles. Complementarian position usually holds that certain positions in the church leadership are reserved for men only. And there's, there really, honestly, there's a spectrum here. Like the, this, those two terms are thrown out, but there's a spectrum. Really, I would say from like Christian feminist to hierarchical chauvinist. And there's a, there's a whole wide spectrum in there. But here's the thing. Anytime we find ourselves separating into isms, whatever it is, we're in trouble. An ism, complementarianism, egalitarianism, an ism develops as a way to separate people into distinct tribes. And the downside is that tribal logic is never rational. Instead of trying to decide which belief or what, how to actually work with this system, you end up trying to defend your tribe at all costs, and you can't think clearly because you're so caught up in an ism. Think about American politics. If you're so caught up in your tribe, you can't even think about any other possibility. We are not to be defined by an ism. We are to be disciples of Jesus and students of the scripture. We let the scripture instruct us. And when we come to the scripture, this is when we come to the scripture, we let it do surgery on us. We don't get to just cut it apart and make it fit with our worldview or how we think it should work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. We let the scriptures cut us. Yes, even the hard ones even the difficult passages that are hard to understand, we submit ourselves to them and ask Jesus for clarity. We don't get to pick and choose what part of the Bible. You don't get to pick and choose which part of Jesus you want to submit to. It's all or nothing. He's either king or he's not. We can't dismiss the hard passages or the ones that don't fit our modern Western worldview. Second Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 16, and this is a pretty famous passage, you'll know this, he says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. All of scripture, even this passage, even these hard ones, even the, the passages in the Old Testament about genocide and whatever's happening there, those are useful and profitable. They're good for correction and for training in righteousness. And at the same time, you hear, hear me nuancing all this a little bit, <laughs> at the same time, we can't just cherry pick a verse out as a proof text and say, well, Paul said it, that settles it, I believe it. Our scripture, our study of scripture needs a little bit more care than that. We can't just take this verse and say, oh, that's it. That's my proof text. I love this quote from Dan Kimball. Dan pastors a church in, uh, in Santa Cruz. He just wrote a book called How Not to Read the Bible. Actually, I really recommend it. It's really good. It's kind of funny. He plays off these memes. Um, he quotes an apologist, and I, I think I have it on the screens, Greg Kukul. I can't pronounce his last name, but he says this. He says, 
What is the single most important practical skill I've ever learned as a Christian? Here it is. Never read a Bible verse. That's right. Never read a Bible verse. Instead, always read a paragraph at least. I think that is good wisdom right there. That's sound wisdom. When we come to a verse that's hard to understand, come to a a passage that's difficult to rationalize with, it's really important that we take a step back and we try to see the big picture. We try to see what's happening in the overarching story of redemption. In fact, I'd say there's three things that I would suggest that we do when we come to a hard verse. First thing I would say is pray. (laughs) The Holy Spirit, breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit's the best possible option you have to interpret the scripture. He will help you and he will guide you. And then secondly, survey the rest of the story. Never read just a verse. Scripture is always the best commentary for Scripture. Always start here before going to any other commentary or resource or, heaven forbid, Google. And then, read in community. Third thing there. You're not in this alone. Read the scripture in community. If there's a passage that stands out is hard or difficult or doesn't make sense, discuss that with your friends. Discuss that with the people here. Read commentaries. They're part of your community. Ask questions. Best advice I could probably give, ask questions of the scripture. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask your friends. Ask your leaders in your life. Ask And so with this verse this morning, it's really important that we look at the rest of what Paul has to say about women before we make a conclusion on what exactly he means with this relatively blunt statement. If all you did was read this one, these two verses, in our modern context, separated from any history or any cultural narrative, you would assume that Paul, and therefore all of Christianity, is patriarchal and chauvinistic. But when we step back and we see the full picture of how women are represented in the New Testament, honestly the whole Bible, but the New Testament specifically, I think we get a different picture. To help us see this bigger picture, tonight I want to walk through a bit of a survey of women in the New Testament. It's not exhaustive by any means because we'd be here all night. Uh, But I think this will help us get the big picture of what Paul's doing here. First off, we have to start, you always have to start with Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer, right? Think of the women who followed Jesus. They were a part of his inner circle. They followed him. Women were brought in. It was women who were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. And they were the first evangelists to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. And this is actually a really beautiful testimony of the authenticity of the story because the testimony of a woman was was given very little credence. So the very fact that the New Testament authors reference the testimony of a woman is a, is a beautiful testimony to the authenticity of it. There was no reason, there's no benefit for them to put that in the story, except that that's actually what happened. Women continue to play a big part in the development of the early church. In Acts 1, the women who had followed and supported Jesus in his earthly ministry, who witnessed his resurrection, they didn't simply vanish when we get to the book of Acts. They were present there in that upper room with the 11 apostles, 
They were part of the larger group, that 120 that was praying there. Among them, we know, was Mary, Jesus' mother. Now, often we, we just think of Mary with Christmas time or, or maybe if you have a Catholic background, other pictures. But this picture of Mary is quite different than the way she's often portrayed. She and other women are engaged in corporate prayer with the rest of the church, ultimately as it conducts its first act of business. Right after, uh, the, right after the resurrection and Pentecost, they're, they're praying about replacing Judas with another apostle. And in Acts 1, uh, towards the end there, 12 through 26, we see the snapshot where Mary is participating in this corporate prayer to choose the replacement for Judas. Jumping way ahead, there's, there's more stories in here, but Acts 16, we meet this woman named Lydia. You guys know the story of Lydia? Lydia was the first convert on Paul's missionary journey, first convert in Philippi. She was a wealthy, influential businesswoman. And apparently she had some sway over her household. Let's read this. Acts 16, 14 through 15. I think. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. She apparently had some sway in her household, which was actually pretty countercultural. The Roman household structure was built heavily on the, the Latin word, which I'm going to butcher, Petra familia. It's the, the head of the household, the father of the household. It was very much a patriarchal structure. But apparently here, Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman with some influence. And she brings them into her household. That story, by the way, Acts 16 is one of my favorite. Just looking at the way Paul establishes, the, the Lord through Paul establishes the church in Philippi. It's Lydia, then it's a slave girl. And then it's a Roman jailer, and the three of them, a very unlikely core group for a church plant. You've got a wealthy, independent businesswoman in a patriarchal society. You've got a slave girl, and you've got a Roman soldier. And that's who the Lord uses to plant the church in Philippi. It's a fascinating story. Skipping ahead, Acts 18 we meet Priscilla and her husband Aquila. This is okay? We're just walking through here. Priscilla and Aquila, unusual for the time, they are almost always, I think always, mentioned together. Even more unusual, though, she, Priscilla, is almost always mentioned first, as if she has the priority. That's extremely rare in Greek, early Greek uh, literature. Fly. In Ephesus, the couple, Priscilla and Aquila, meet an educated Alexandrian Jew named Apollos, who taught accurately about Jesus, but only up until the work of John the Baptist, which is, it's accurate, but it's missing most of the story, right? And Priscilla and Aquila then take Apollos aside and explain the gospel to him more fully. It would seem here that a woman, Priscilla, is then involved in teaching a man, Apollos. At least in this interpersonal setting, they pull him aside. In Acts, tw uh, Acts 21, verse 2, 
Philip's daughters are said to prophesy. Prophecy could be on a spectrum from like as simple as just encouraging, exhorting, and uplifting people to like all out speaking on behalf of God. And Philip is said to have, I think, four daughters that prophesy. In 1 Corinthians 11, jumping now into Paul's letters, and this is another one of those controversial (laughs) passages that people get worked up over. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's giving these instructions about head coverings. You guys remember this part? And people often get caught up in that, focus on the head coverings. But I think the point of this passage, the head coverings, was that while publicly in the context of the gathering, praying and prophesying, that's what they're being encouraged to do, women should wear head coverings with the very purpose that they look intentionally like women. This is uh, game-changing in the culture. Look like women when you're praying and prophesying in the gathering. Don't try to hide in. Don't try to hide it. Be intentional to have women praying and prophesying in the gathering. I think that's the point. We get really caught up in the head, head coverings. couple more. Titus 2, 3 and 4. Older women are to be teachers of what is good to younger women. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Each person comes to the church gathering, each person, with a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, or interpretation. The expectation there, this is, this is good for us, is that you all male or female, everybody would come to the gathering, come on Sunday afternoons, with a teaching, a hymn, a revelation, what God's showing you, and an interpretation. There's no distinction in that male or female. You all are expected to come to the gathering. That's kind of intense, right? Normally you, come, you think you come here to like receive a teaching, Paul's saying you come to the gathering to bring something. In 2 Timothy, we learn that Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother, the scriptures. In Colossians 3, Paul tells the Colossians church that the word of Christ, uh, he tells them to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, same thing. There's no distinction, no indication of this restriction. And then in Romans 16, Paul makes reference to several other women, which he calls his fellow workers. We know from multiple places in the New Testament Women are in the office of a deacon. They're called deaconesses. But for me, one of my, I think one of the clearest indications of women involvement in the New Testament comes from Romans 16. Romans 16, we're going to look at one and two. This is one of these passages that gets quickly overlooked. Romans 16, one and two. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Censorea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron for many and of myself as well. Tucked in what is often overlooked, this passage of personal greetings that happens at the very end of the book of Romans. You get this little interjection about this lady, Phoebe. Paul is sending Phoebe to deliver the book of Romans to the church in Roman, uh, to, to the church in Rome. Scripture doesn't necessarily make this clear. 
Um, but we do know that Phoebe was a benefactor. She worked with Paul. And if he trusted her to take the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, and deliver it, she must have been a woman of great ability and very trustworthy. It was customary in the Roman culture that the person who you gave a letter to, who carried the letter, would be the person to read it and then answer any questions that the recipients had about that letter. That was the customary practice. So who do you think the first person would be that they would ask if somebody comes reading the book of Romans, Phoebe comes reading the book of Romans, and there's a question about the righteousness of God? Who do they ask? Phoebe. Who's the first person, possibly, we don't actually know this, this is just extra biblical, possibly the first person to teach the book of Romans? Possibly Phoebe. Think about that for a second. This is Romans. This is, this is Paul's crown jewel. This is one of the most theologically dense works in all of history. This is Paul's greatest letter, the most influential letter written in Western history, Western thought. It is this, the greatest piece of Christian theology. There are volumes written about this letter. Preachers spend years trying to preach all the way through the book of Romans. And Paul sent it with a woman. Michael Bird says this. Now, if Paul was so opposed to women teaching men anytime and anywhere, why on earth would he send a woman like Phoebe to deliver this vitally important letter and to be his personal representative in Rome? Why not Timothy, Titus, or any other dude? Why Phoebe? That's, for me, I just had to step back and think through that for a minute. He could have sent Timothy. Timothy, his dear son, his beloved son, he would have gone for him, I'm sure. So as you can see, little brief, you guys okay? Little brief look at the New Testament there. It's not quite as simple as taking this passage at face value. You can't just pull this verse out of 1 Timothy and settle the issue on women teaching. Or having authority over men. You guys, we have to use the most clear passages of that we have in the scripture to interpret the hard ones. And when we take the New Testament as a whole, the very thrust of the gospel, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, slave nor free. The power of the cross to bring communities together and break down the dividing walls of hostility. I think we get a fuller picture of the way women are approached in the New Testament. We see that it's neither feminism nor chauvinism. It won't fit neatly in any of our isms or our tight categories. We looked a few weeks ago, the, the Artemis cult here in Ephesus, getting back to our verse. The Artemis cult, Diana, it over-sexualized and it gave almost absolute authority to women. While the rest of the ancient world, for the most part, oppressed and domineered over women. And as tends to be true for most polar extremes, the way of Jesus stands in opposition to both of those ultimates. 
and he declares a better way. So let's get back to our verse real quick and see what Paul might be getting at here. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What does it mean to learn quietly with all submissiveness? Eugene Peterson in the message, he translates this like this. He says, they should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. N.T. Wright, in his recent translation of the New Testament, he translates it like this. They must study undisturbed in full submission to God. As I was studying this passage the last several weeks, actually, I've been looking at this, I've been thinking about this phrase, women learning quietly with all submissiveness. The story that came to mind over and over is the story of Mary and Martha from Luke 10. Let's look at this. Luke 10, starting in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet, learning. I think that's the picture of learning quietly with all submission. That should be the picture that comes into our mind when we read that. What was she doing at his feet? I think we often think of this, we think of her just like staring at him or like kind of dazed, I don't know. But what she was doing was she was joining the boys. <laughs> they were sitting around him and he was teaching. And there's Mary, learning, sitting at his feet. She was becoming a disciple, a learner. This was the posture of a student in that culture to sit at his feet, to sit at the teacher's feet. The very implication of being a disciple, of being a learner, that's it's like an apprentice, is that she would then go and make disciples. I think the main reason Martha is upset here, I'm sure she'd probably like some help in the kitchen too, but the main reason is Mary had crossed a barrier, a cultural norm. She's sitting with the boys, learning. I think this is one of the keys to this passage. One of the keys here is to recognize, realize that what is happening here is Paul is commanding that women should be allowed to learn. They should be allowed to, allowed to study and to learn, and they should not be restrained from doing so. And I know we get caught up in it, but in that culture, this is a real localized letter written to real people in a real culture. In that culture, that would have been scandalous. The very fact that he's saying, let a woman learn, would have been scandalous. Then we come to the hard one, I think. 
verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she must remain quiet. This is the one that causes all the drama. This is the one that creates the isms. I have referenced as many commentaries as I could on this passage. I think, yeah, at least like 18. Whole books have been written on this one verse. This one verse. There's whole books written about it. There's position papers, doctrinal statements, people's doctoral uh, theses are written on this. People try all sorts of exegetical voodoo to get around this passage. <laughs> Weird stuff. Here's what I've resolved. Okay, this is my, my thoughts on this passage. For those who take this at a pure face value, and they say that this is there's no cultural sentiment involved, this is as applicable now, a straight form as it was then. My pushback, my pushback would be, keep your exegesis consistent. If that's the case, then you also have to take verse 9 the same way. And then women would not be able to wear nice clothes, jewelry, or braided hair. You, just, you can't have one without the other. You have to keep your, your exegesis consistent as you approach this. And also, along with that being consistent... How far do you take that? So women can't teach in the church, but they can write books. They can teach in seminaries. They can be on the radio. They can lead businesses. They could be the vice president. Like, where do you take this? The other side usually is that people take this passage and they write it off as purely a cultural statement that applied only to the church of Ephesus. They say it's something like, you know, greet each other with a holy kiss. Like, clearly we don't all have to do that. Especially in a COVID era, I, that would probably be frowned upon. But I don't think that's a reasonable way to interpret the scripture. I think that's a slippery slope to just relegate this to a cultural situation and leave it at that. Where does that stop? You could do that with anything and say, well, that, that was 2,000 years ago. We know better now. You can't do that either. So we have a, a problem, right? But it is helpful because this is culturally located to remember what was happening and what exactly is Paul dealing with in this letter? And then I think from that, we then extrapolate that to our modern context, much like Nikolai did last week with talking about Instagram posts, right? It's not just about your fashion necessarily. It could be about the way that you make your, what did he say, your Christmas tree look like? I don't know. Our Christmas tree is decorated by the kids, so it's it's a mess. Um, and our Instagram's full of like bike bikes and stuff, so I, I don't get it. But um, one of the main things that's happening here in Ephesus, one of the things we know is that the um, the religious culture in Ephesus, the main religion. What was happening, the biggest temple was this temple shrine uh, to Artemis. The Greek Greeks called her Diana. It was a massive structure. What we know is that all the priests were women. In fact, for men to be involved, they'd have to be castrated. This is pretty intense. The women ruled the show, and they kept the men in their place. So as the church in Ephesus is growing, possibly women from that cult are coming into the faith. Paul's dealing with this heresy and things that are going on. Paul wanted to say that, yes, he wants to affirm the gospel has radically changed the way that we think about genders, the way that we think about the, what's normal, 
It's changed all of that. We don't need to oppress or hold anybody down. Yet at the same time, Paul is not saying that women should be trained up so that the way of Jesus, the early church that's forming there, would gradually become more and more like the cult of Artemis, where women did all the learning and kept the men in line. Paul's dealing with that. So Paul is saying, and I think much like Jesus in Luke 10, that women must have a space and leisure to learn. They must be able to study and grow as a disciple of Jesus. But not in order that they would muscle in and take over the leadership like they did in the Artemis cult. The point is that men and women alike can grow and learn as disciples in the way of Jesus with the intent that they would all, even women, go and make disciples. I think one of the key words here in this passage, verse 12, is that word authority. What does Paul mean by that? We were discussing this on Thursday. The, the idea behind this word actually has, it's more to do with like an authoritarian position. I think Paul's saying something like this, given all the context, all that we've looked at, First Timothy definitely is dealing with teaching in the gathering. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. Uh, and he's dealing with issues in church leadership. He's going to lay out structures for elders and for deacons. We're going to get into all that. And so he uses this word to teach and exercise, teach or exercise authority. In my opinion, I think this probably refers to something like to teach and in so doing usurp the authority. Instead, you need to let her learn but not to teach as a way to usurp authority because he's dealing with a real cultural thing that's happening there. So men, this verse is not a license for domineering chauvinism. The whole point here in this section must come back into clarity. We are to pray. We are to be people marked by prayer and by unity and by making disciples. Don't get caught up in the stereotypes and needless arguments. It's shocking, actually, that a passage that in its original context seems to be about everybody coming together as a community, praying, professing godliness, living together, showing good works, it's dissolved into this contentious debate that divides us, actually. And ladies, I think the lesson here, you're not off the hook. You are called to make disciples. You are to learn the way of Jesus and to teach the way of Jesus. You are to make disciples who then make disciples. We will look at, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at and discuss the role of elder. It's an office in the church. When we get there, we'll see that I, I do believe that is restricted to men only. And I think there's really good exegetical reasons for that. We'll get there in a few weeks. So here's where we land on this, I believe, as a church and as, as elders. We want to be a community that doesn't give in to the cultural pressures of the day. We are not defined by feminism or chauvinism. We are not defined by the cultural pressures from around us. We are a community that's shaped by the scriptures and the way of Jesus. That means 
that we affirm that men and women are created with the same dignity in the image of God and yet are not the same. They are unique in their nature and have unique roles in the family and in the broader family of the church. The point there is that men cannot be women and women cannot be men. We also affirm that eldership, for reasons like, like I said, that we'll look at in a few weeks, is reserved for men only. The role of an elder is that of a church father figure. If you go back to what I just said, father figures are men. They can't be women. We need godly men to stand up and exemplify, I believe, a godly masculinity to a world that is rejecting masculinity as bad or even offensive. So guys, we do need to stand up and show what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus. We need to lead, but we need to lead with humility and gentleness, defined by meekness. The way of Jesus is always defined by meekness, which means restrained strength. And at the same time, we want, to be, we want to see the women in our community step into their giftings and callings. We want to see the women in this community feel empowered to go and make disciples. We want to see them use their unique giftings to serve and bless the church and their entire spheres of influence. No, not just children's ministry or behind the scenes, but the whole church. Amen? Here's what, I'm, here's what I want to do. Actually, I want to have the women stand up. We're going to, I want to pray for the women. So guys, if, <laughs> if you could if you put your hand on your wife or stretch your hand out towards some of the women, we are going to pray for the women in this community, okay? The worship team can come back up in a minute. Father, I just thank you for the unique giftings and callings on these ladies. God, all that you have done in their lives and all that you will continue to do through them God, we ask that you would fan into flame the gifts and the callings that you have put in them, that you would stir them up for good works. You would stir them up for the gospel. God, I ask that here in this community that women would be bold about making disciples, that they would teach others to teach others how to follow in the way of Jesus, how to practice the way of Jesus, how to live like Jesus. God, I ask that they would be an example to us even. And God, I pray for the men in this community that we would support and challenge and encourage the ladies. Help us to see them as you do. Jesus, we love and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.